Hey, all how's right. it going? Welcome. Oh. Welcome back to the Inking Out Loud podcast. This is episode, episode five, five already. I can't believe we've done five of these already. No, we've done four of these. This is five. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm Drew McCaffrey, one of your co-hosts here. I am another co-host of yours. I am Rob Santos. And again, we have our special guest, Jared Livingston, back. Jared, guys. For, oh, man. How's it going? Continuing through the Rune Lord series, yes. uh, today we're covering about the first half of the second book, Brotherhood of the Wolf. Brotherhood of the Wolf. Um, I want to start off by saying that I've really been enjoying Farland's pacing, first off. This guy, there's no there's no downtime, ever, yeah. and I love it. You're just constantly boom, 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 boom. It never gets boring. So it's been awesome. I've been doing audiobook again up uh, up until the halfway point. I can't find my e-reader. I've torn apart my bedroom. I've torn apart the, the storage basement. Uh, I had it a month ago, and now I, I can't find it. So I've had to listen to the audiobook for this whole time. As a, you know, because of that, I've missed a few things. I'm going to be uh, asking <laughs> you and Jared to clarify a few things. You guys have read this several times, right? It's not like Cosmere level kind of like reading over and over again. So I, I, I have read it. I mean... This is my book. If this yeah. gives you an idea of how many times I've read it, the spine is completely broken Drew in half. Is showing um, me his physical. But over it's the, also been him. probably a decade since I've read this book. So. Ah, great. Okay, good. It's well, only, it's only the second time that I've read it. You, you read the thing. What's that? It's only the second time that I've read it. Okay. Okay. Um, I guess should I should I ask things right now that I'm a little confused about? Actually, there's only one. Or should we should we wait until we get there in the conversation? Because this is. Something that happens later in this in the first half. Well, how about we just uh, let's just start off and kind of recap events, you know? Okay. Um, okay. Yeah, go for it. So it, it kicks off pretty. What I start drinking. Pretty fast after the end of um, uh, the first book, Some of All Men. Yes. Um, Gaborn is the Earth King, and they're heading back to Castle Silveresta for Hassenfest, and he's going around and like choosing people. To protect and and serve and all this stuff and um, yeah, and then we meet. We have a couple of new characters, new point of view characters. Yep. We have yep. Roland, who is uh, Borenson's father. Yeah, that took me a while to pick up on. Yeah, embarrassingly uh, mm -hmm. long actually. Um, and then we have Avarin or Avarin. I don't know how the audiobook pronounces it. Uh, who's uh, Averin, yeah. Averin, yeah. And so she is a, a young girl who's a grok rider. She's like a messenger, has this like pterodactyl kind of thing. Um, yep. And she uh, has some very interesting developments early on in this book. Uh, she falls in with the, with Roland and uh, another knight named Baron Pole, and mm -hmm. they run into Benizmin's Wild. Oh, that is the wild? Yeah. Okay. Okay, so that was one... Thank you for reminding me of one of the things I was going to ask. I don't remember the wild being uh, described this way in yeah. The Sum of All Men. This green woman is what yep. they keep referring to her as. I was like, this sounds vaguely similar, but it doesn't match the description of... of, of uh, not Boren since Wild, sorry, Benisman's Wild from the first book. So I'm like, are they related? Is there more than one it, of these? It, Thanks it is for the wild, yeah. clarifying that. Okay, good, good. Um... um yeah, and, and so she she's sent, you know, her story starts because uh, a volcano erupts and a huge army of Reavers has issued forth from the underworld. Huge army of Reavers. Because um, yeah. no one saw that coming. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, and so so everybody kind of is converging on Castle Karis, which is this, like, island fortress in Mystaria. Raja Ten is heading there with with a huge army. The Reavers are heading there. Gaborn is heading there. Uh, Roland and Averin just got there. Well, Roland just got there, not Averin, uh, at the end of uh, the segment that we read. Um, everything is kind of... Uh, we're setting the stage for a pretty yeah. spectacular battle in the in the second half of this book. But before we get there, uh, Rajatan's Flame Weavers opened a portal to the Netherworld and summoned... Mm -hmm. Yeah, a they did. Being of darkness and fire, called a Darkland glory, and yeah. uh, and that attacked. Oh, oh, and and so there's another another new character. We have Aaron Connell. I was gonna ask. I was like, yeah. wait a second. That's not the Avern you're talking about. Because no. we're talking about the little girl. Yeah, yeah. Aaron. Is Aaron still Connell, the, who's uh, the who's the daughter the of the High Queen of Fleeds. Yes, yeah, she's very yeah. Scottish. Um, yeah, she is. And Kellinor Anders, who's the son of King Anders. 
uh, they are traveling together, and, and where we are now, Kelinor was grievously wounded by the Darkling Glory, but he's hanging on. And uh, the Darkling Glory continued on to Castle Silveresto, where it was driven off by Benesman and Mirama, who yeah, that was awesome. had a little a little help from these sturgeon water wizards <laughs> that showed up in the moat. Yeah. So um, there there are lots of lots of uh, developments just in the early going yeah. of this book. And lots of character growth. And that's what I mentioned at the top here is that you really hit the ground running. There's it, just like in the sum of all men, your plot is consistently moving forward at a great pace. There's no real moments of stopping and smelling the flowers. Uh, figuratively, if you will. I mean, yeah. the whole timeline is over a couple days or a week or so, right? Yeah, book one was like book it was like two or three days, it was right? And four seems... days, and then book two starts the day after, and um, I think this book is. Let me see. I'm just flipping through to see how many days total. I think this book is only like two or three days. God it's damn. Even so shorter. you have your, your first two entire books. What a week Gaborn is having, eh? Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Well, I think yeah, he I says just... that like, uh, you know, a week ago uh, the only thing I was worried about was like the hat I had on or something. Yeah. Well, he was coming, he wanted to, you know, he wanted to introduce himself to Iomi Silveresta, uh-huh. right? And he was like worried about how she would regard him, you know? And uh, holy shit, now he's the Earth King, and he has everybody's lives on his shoulders, and he has all these new powers that he's going to have to figure out, and and just a lot of guilt that he's going to have to kind of address. Oh, yeah. And uh, he's further complicated by Rajaten's massacre on the Blue Tower. Yes. Yeah. Which is the giant Dedicates Keep or basically all of Mystaria. So what was once the most powerful kingdom in Rofhaven basically just had its military might halved. Okay. Uh, I think you just answered my question that I had. Yeah, all of the Mystarian soldiers of any note just lost their endowments. Okay. Okay. Good. Including See, that Borenson. Was, that was the question Including that I, had that I was going yes. to, to, to ask you. <gasps> Borenson too. I yeah. didn't consider that. So, so uh, this, that book, like, this oh, book takes that was... place over three days. <laughs> Damn. Yeah. Damn. I think that might that have been one in one of the things, next chapters, but yeah. One of the things I had missed that I was going to ask you about was, hold on, at what point did Gaborn lose his endowments again? I don't remember uh, what exactly happened and why he, he lost all of his endowments. I just remember reading later that suddenly, oh my god, he, he doesn't have them anymore as the Darkling was about to attack. What happened there? But, uh, yeah, so you answered my question. That was going to be, I was going to say, Drew, hold on. How did he lose his endowments again? Okay, you just... Yeah, yeah, Rajatin, like, hopped in a little rowboat. Was Rajatin that f***ed up? Yeah, he he hopped in a little boat and sailed over the bay and yelled at the blue tower until it (laughs) fell. Really? Yeah. Oh, man. So he just pulled, uh, he pulled the same thing, the same stunt that he did in the first book at Longmont. And and that's how this book starts out as well. Rajatin shows up at, at a castle in Mystaria and just takes it down with his voice. And he does yeah. that too, I think, three castles at the beginning. Damn. See, that must have been one of the parts, um, speaking of the Blue Tower, the Blue Tower, Blue I got Tower, that yeah. name right, yes. Um, that must have been one of the parts where I had kind of dozed off while listening to my audiobook and realized that like, oh shit, you know, two hours and 13 minutes has passed, I've got to go back and try to find where I was. That happened to me a few times, so I'm going to have a, a few very specific small gaps in my knowledge about what's happened up to this point. Um, but I also have more notes to talk about than I have at any other podcast before this. I have a lot of impressions. I love, uh, you guys want to start talking about characters specifically? Yeah, yeah, sure. Okay. So um, where, where we left off with? at the end of Some of All Men, I know you had expressed you were not a fan of Borenson anymore. And, I was very uh, angry. I was very angry at him. Yeah. Uh, how do you feel about him now? Uh, I, I think I overreacted. I feel a little bad for how angry I was and how much <laughs> I hated his guts at the end of that first book. He's got a little more dimension. Um, you can see how much he honestly cares for Mirma and how much guilt he has and how many issues he has over self-worth and, and his, his, you know, his need for uh, some sort of, uh, 
reckoning or redemption of some sort. Mm-hmm. So I yeah I, I've I've come a little more over towards Borenson Junior. I should say yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that's that's about it. I, I I'm not as mad as it, at him as I was a week ago. Okay. Um, anything specifically about Borenson you want to discuss? Well, he's certainly I would say he's certainly set up for a new kind of uh, moral test. Yes. Mm-hmm. That he was not expecting. He he has gone south into Indopal to yep. the Palace of Concubines. Yeah. And is trying to get Safira, who is Raja Ten's favored Yeah. You know wife. Wife, essentially. Um yeah. to come back with him to Rofhaven and convince Raja Ten to knock it off, basically. And he brought knock a whole off. bunch of forcibles <laughs> with glamour. And, yeah, he brought a bunch with glamour and voice too. Yeah, and and uh, the plan is to make Safira utterly irresistible so that she can convince Raja Ten. Yeah. But the deal is, well, <laughs> <laughs> Hold on. in order to lay eyes on Safira, he must become a eunuch. And oh, really? Yeah. I don't remember he, that specific he, little. It detail. has not happened yet. It has. Uh, the God, I must be the uh, the castration has not occurred, but uh, it, that is the deal that was made. Oh God! Oh so, no! So that's a bit of a you know a, a bit of a problem his to for his young marriage with Mirama. <laughs> oh, sh- she I cannot be pleased. That I missed. If she were to learn of this, Kudos so to him, though. so yeah. as Jared said, yeah. Bornson has kind of a new moral challenge. That has uh, arisen here. Yeah, he does. And he's also dealing with someone who has so many endowments of glamour that he... How do you describe it? He's basically... He can't resist whatever she wants to do, I guess you Mm -hmm. could say. She being... Rajatin's favorite wife, yeah. Yeah. Not due to voice, but although I think she has a significant number of voice endowments as well. Yeah. Um, um. As far as Borenson goes, and talking about his whole new kind of moral journey that he's embarking on here, I still want to point out that at one moment, I uh, let's see here, I wrote it down. This is very specifically about Borenson while we're still here. Um, oh, it's during the scene where Gaborn is planning with his advisors and contemplating the plan to convert Rajatin's favorite wife. Uh, mm-hmm. From from Borenson's specific point of view, <clears throat> he said, or sorry. Farland said, Borens had had the blood of over 2,000 men, women, and children on his hands. Perhaps if he could bring this off, he reasoned, he might someday feel clean yeah. again. So I think that's a, that, that's a big driving point um, for Borenson as a character. He kind of wants to wash his hands of the figurative and literal blood that he has on them. So yeah. this, is a, this is a good thing for him. I was a little disappointed that he's not immediately going up to find Dalen Hammer, as we thought he was going to do. Yeah. Uh, at the end of book one, but I'm 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 uh, I'm still excited to see what what's going on here. I wasn't even considering a journey to Indopal and what mm-hmm. that could uh, what that could mean. So I'm pretty I'm pretty stuck to see at least where his story's going. Even if I'm not totally on board with him being a great guy yet. Um, yeah, so you know I think that pretty much wraps up Borenson as a character for me. Yeah, Junior. so let's let's jump to his yeah. father. Let's jump to Roland. Yeah. It took me a while to figure out that he was Borenson's father. Uh, an embarrassingly long amount of time. I, I didn't even realize it until it was Baron Pole who told him, oh, you know, that you have a son in the Kingsguard. And I was like, wait a second. Hold on. Oh, and it was that light bulb that went off. I was actually walking into a grocery store listening to my headphones at that point when that light bulb went off. I was like, okay, I know who this is now. It's pretty cool, though. Yeah. So uh, how many how many years was Roland uh, fast 21. asleep? 21. I think he was uh, he was asleep for twenty or twenty one years. Why wow, you look so? Uh, that sounds about I, right. I don't remember. I don't remember what the specific number was. My impression was that it was like ten years or so. But well, no, he, no, he no, no. That doesn't. It, it must have been twenty one years because yeah. he he never even met uh, Ivarian Borenson. Is he never met his son before he? Yeah, went he didn't under. even know he had a son until. Yeah. He figured it out through what? Because Baron Pole had confused him for Borenson, for Borenson Jr. Certainly. And that's how he figured out, I suppose, he had a son. I feel like his central motivation is what must it be like to wake up after 20 years yeah. and knowing that you woke up because the lord the that you gave an endowment to is dead. He's yep. died, exactly. 
and and, and that's, then, that that plays in uh, where you know across Rofhaven, all the way across Rofhaven and Mistaria, they know there was a, like they know King Orden is dead. They know that two thousand of his best knights are dead because all of yeah. these dedicates just got their, you know, endowments back. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so that's that's another kind of imp implication with this magic system that he explores a little bit of how just like the fact that somebody is getting their endowment back can relay information across the continent. And is it one kind of oh. smaller aside that I found really fascinating in this part was how all of the men who had granted wit now were able to sort of yes. come together and piece together the different memories mm -hmm. that they were now left with. Like, I guess you are left with certain pieces of memories from the person that you granted your really? endowment to. Yes. Which oh, is really I intriguing. pick up on that, but it makes sense if you consider the relationship between the days. Right. Yep. Right? And so, yeah, yeah so they were able to kind of, like, episode. piece together all these memories that they had and figure out what happened pretty much exactly. Damn. Yeah, what would it find out? It's not a messenger that arrives, you know, it's yeah. not just like some rumors that start. It's just like, oh my god, everybody's up and awake and everybody's moving around. Some shit went down. Mm, I don't yep. know what's going on. Yeah. Can't be good, you know? Um, and and uh, I had something else to say about uh, Bornson Sr. What was it? Oh, think about the mind f that must be too, to know that you have a son who is technically your, not only your superior, like militarily speaking, but who's also your senior. Yeah. As a son, yeah. it's got to be mm -hmm. crazy to contemplate there. And I like how far he's effectively making older than Roland. He's effective because he's got his endowments of metabolism, right? Does mm -hmm. Borenson have one or two he endowments two. of metabolism? He okay, so he two, ages I, at well, triple had, had. speed. <laughs> yeah. Had. He no longer has. Yeah. Um, which, Wait, so does he look much younger now then? Borenson Jr.? I don't think no, so. I think, no. I think he's, his aging process has just slowed back down to normal, but he's yeah. still left with his yeah. you know, 40 some odd years, I think, that he's got accumulated. Right. That, is, that is correct. Okay, so I understood that uh, properly. Yeah. Um, anything else about Borenson Sr. you want to, to cover? Well, I think. At least, not much more for part one, I imagine, eh? Yeah. Some of it goes into Averin, I suppose. Yeah, where I want to he... talk about Averin. Sure, he sure. Wants I don't, I don't remember of... a whole lot about her, so let's. Uh, this will be a little instructive for me as well. He, he. I, I guess the segue would the segue would be that he sees himself as a father figure for her. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Fine. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, they come across a Varen and uh, the Wild and her Grok, and he and Baron Paul mistakenly believe that the Grok is attacking a Varen. Yeah, yeah. So they uh, so they swoop they in to save the day and kill the rock the and yeah become this, uh, acquainted quite well with this wild. Yeah, and yeah. and and Averin has a particular affinity to the wild, um, just just a kind of natural thing. Yeah, what is that? And What's as that we she's see, just suddenly it, they have a connection like right off the bat. Yeah, like... and and as we see, uh, Averin has a connection with the earth. And Wait, we do see that? Yes. What do you speak of specifically? Uh, so the last thing we saw with Averin, she um, hid. She dug a shallow grave yeah, and yeah. crawled in with the wild, and she whispers, cover me, and the earth moves and covers them. Oh, that wasn't the, the wild's doing? No. That was the earth just being mm -hmm. like, I... Oh. So Averin <laughs> is a that. little... At least the signs indicate that she is a little Earth Warden in training now. What the f*** is up with those fish? What's going on with those sturgeons? <laughs> they're water wizards. Those water wizards? Yes, yeah. okay. Because they're like, I was a little creeped out at first that they were all, you know, or they were all arriving. They're all doing their little dancing in the water. They're, do, they're tracing their little runes. And what are they afraid of? Oh, they're afraid specifically of blood. The river's filling up with blood. And I was like, what the hell? That was some, some really weird and pseudo creepy stuff to read and I mean, i'm glad that we kind of have a little bit of an answer now we we know why those fish were there we know you know what purpose they served and it was great to yeah. see them uh come in at a very moment uh at a very important moment to help mirima uh but those fish give me the heebie-jeebies <laughs> and that's a sentence i never expected to say 
in the entirety of my life. But See, I really like them, but the heebie-jeebies, you know. yeah. fish, water wizards, whatever, same thing. I guess in this scenario. Yeah, I I I really like that. By the way, like it's a yeah. it's a nice little twist that Farland cool. puts on a on you know the traditional four elements magic, where yeah. like you you have you have non-human, you know, practitioners, non-human magic users. You have sturgeon that are, you know, uh, water wizards, and like yeah. And, and, I did like that touch right at the And end. even the humans, like we see the the one, the young girl at the end of Some of All Men who has like started becoming a fish kind of. Like she has gills now and like can't come out of the water much. You know, she soothes Borenson at the end of Some of All Men. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. I was really confused until you mentioned Borenson. And I was like, that's right. I remember that, that yeah. scene now. Yeah. yeah so there, there's some, some neat little applications to the magic. Um, you know, uh, more than just a traditional earth, water, fire, air Which thing. Which is something that we te- that we touched on in, uh, you know, I think either the previous episode or the first episode of the Sum of All Men, where I mentioned that I like the way that Farland managed to manages to incorporate his magic systems into the world as a as a wider whole, not just about the battles, but like yeah. the societal implications. Um, and, and this kind of matches that stride that you're talking about right now that. Uh, Farland manages to do interesting things with his magic that fit into the world as a whole, not just specifically into the plot. And I really like yeah. that. that. It really goes to show that, you know, he, he gave a lot of thought to these books as he was writing them or maybe before he wrote them. I don't know how much of an outliner he is, but um, it's well done. From, yeah, it's, yeah. It's kudos for me. It's also really, a, you know, a mark of some skill that for a, a series that takes place over such a short time frame. I mean, you know, we're just yeah. talking. We're We're... <laughs> like five days in yeah and, and he's already done a tremendous job of building this world in such a short span you know absolutely i agree i agree and it has greatly expanded in this book you know the first book was pretty yeah. much just it everything happened in Herodon. the it first was... book could have been a standalone oh absolutely yeah it works just fine as a standalone um, um but, but there's a lot going on now but now too. now we have fleeds we have south crothin we have mystaria we have orwin involved we have Bornson gone down into Indopol like it the world is expanding a lot even yeah. as the characters themselves aren't necessarily traveling to more places I mean obviously like Gaborn and and that whole crew they're going to Karis they're they're going through Leeds and and down in Mystaria but you know, it, they don't stop and spend a lot of time in places. It's it's no, very no. much like, oh, we're that. leaving, and we're gonna ride six hundred miles tomorrow on our magic horses. Like, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> our force horses. They're so they're good for so much. Yeah. Um. Uh, you mentioned Gaborn. Do you want to talk about Gaborn and how he's doing? Sure. Or do you still have sure. more you want to cover as far as uh, Avarin goes, or? Uh, I'm I'm done with Avarin. I I do want to talk about Gaborn. I want to talk about Mirama too. Uh, yeah. Oh, I got so much to talk about with Mirma. Okay, good. Mirma is uh, one of my new favorites. But... Yeah, Mirma's awesome. Yeah, she's an I, excellent I didn't. Character. I wasn't a huge fan in the Sum of All Men, but she's really starting to shine in this one. She's. I think she's without question my favorite female character in this series so far. Um, who are we talking about first, though? Gaborn. Should we cover Gaborn? Uh, sure. Let's let's get okay. Gaborn out of the way. Let's. Okay. Uh, so so we see a little more in this one of like some concrete earth powers that he has. We see mm-hmm. how the choosing works and how like, yep. he can sense danger to his chosen and he can speak in their minds and give them commands and suggestions and like try to help them out. Um, and that's, that's kind of the major thing that we've seen of his power so far, um, that he's using this to effectively manage all of these people spread out over such a large area where he, yeah. he'll, like, choose lords and then let them go home. And then through this bond, through this, you know, telepathic bond that he has with his chosen, he can give them commands and then they can carry out their I commands in their own it. little areas. I haven't seen that in another fantasy book, but I love that whole mechanic. The fact that he can issue commands telepathically, regardless of distance, is just awesome. It's, it, there's so many really cool, unique applications that we've seen already, too. Mm-hmm. Um, like specifically, uh, first off, there was a point, um, near the beginning, I don't want to say near the beginning of the, of book two here, but, uh, where Gaborn says, 
my death is coming. The death of all of us is coming. That was pretty damn creepy, Gaborn. I think that was right before, if I'm not mistaken, Raj Otten summoned the, the Darkling yes, Glory. Um, I thought At first, I thought Cassus Silveresta was under attack, like right there. I was like, oh shit, something's going to happen. Um, and something did really happen, but it wasn't uh, quite as it wasn't quite as soon as I thought it was. But that whole summoning scene of the of the Darkling uh, was f- awesome, and I do want to cover that once we're done with Gaborn and once we're done with with Mirima. Um, I do also speaking of Gaborn, I like the fact that he's being realistic about his abilities and about his struggle against Rajatan. Um, I think a lot of times you have the the downfall of characters being a little too prideful; they want to take out their enemies right away in this case confusing their enemies i think i I really like the fact that gaborn is focusing more on the reavers and less on destroying rajatan and in in fact you know entertaining the possibility of uh uh, having a truce with Mm -hmm. rajatan which is kind of mortifying all of his advisors and his wife specifically um but i do i think it shows a lot of character and i think it shows a lot of growth um, yeah, at least at least in book two, from his stance at the end of book one, and and it makes for a really good you know moral conflict where mm-hmm. you know he's he's the Earth King and the Earth is all about protection and it's yes. kind of this paradox that he has to deal with where he's like how do I fight a war if I can only protect like that yeah. that automatically sort of puts him on the back foot that he has to be reactionary you know, instead of you know making the first strike sort of things. Mm-hmm. And so he has to he has to reconcile his role as Earth King with what he would normally want to do and how he would normally want to execute a war. And how his personal feelings of vengeance don't really factor mm-hmm. into how he needs to protect his people. Yeah. Yeah. And who he considers his people, the people of Indopol are still his people. Like yeah. it's very important to consider that Gaborn is, is is charged with protecting all life on Earth, not just lives that he wants to protect. Yeah. Which I think uh, going forward is going to be a big problem for him. I see, but I'm really interested in seeing on how he uh, how he deals with that. Uh, Jared, any uh, thoughts about Gaborn specifically? I mean, what I find really interesting about him in this book is how he's sort of trying to grow into his powers. One example being sort of the logistics of <clears throat> how he reaches out to people, and we kind of see one scene where he tells people to uh, get ready to flee or something like yes, that, and yes, they loved those take scenes. it literally and, you know, begin to sprint away, and, you know, he has to, like, resend his... I don't even... I don't know what you call it. Resend his... His orders, if commands, you want to call it. Yeah. His uh, thought yeah. commands, well, I don't know. Like, oh, shit. He doesn't realize he can be a little heavy-handed on those telepathic. Right. Yeah. You know, when you're suddenly and, like yeah, yelling in someone's children skull. behind when they're told to flee. You know, it's <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely that. That also kind of new struggle where he's trying to figure out how to use his powers and how exactly everything works as yeah. as the Earth. And the King, subtleties of those powers. He, he yeah. was never even an Earth Warden before becoming the Earth King, so he has no experience with the, this kind of stuff. And on yeah. top of that, he's from Mystaria, where there are very few Earth Wardens. They're all about the water there. So this and is this is a very new kind of experience for him. And Raffo for... me if this is a Raffo point. But is the is Earth the only mental the only sorry elemental that has a king? Is there a fire king? Is there an air king or a water king? Is mm-hmm. like I said, feel free to Raffo uh, me or I'm, I'm gonna Raffo you on that one. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, cause as soon as you, uh, yeah, as soon as you mentioned the point you just did, I thought, wait a second, there could be, this is specifically earth. I think it was when you said that, um, he never has any experience as an earth warden and now suddenly he's an earth king. And I spent, uh, my, my brain just went, oh yeah, there must be a hierarchy there. I wonder if there's hierarchies for the other elementals. I mean, uh, I, I don't know if there's any kind of formal hierarchy, but I, I just thought that was an interesting thing that like he gets thrown into this role as earth king. Mm-hmm. With no prior experience with the Earth, is is uh, Benisman as an Earth Warden any more bound to to I almost said Rayodin. Wow, uh, Gaborn as an Earth King <laughs> any more than say like the Water Wizards are? Uh, no? uh, well, I mean the Water Wizards that we've seen are like fish; they're not very conscious in the first place. No, I mean not really. No, okay, well, okay. Benisman you know. is he's a little more tied closely with Gaborn just because. 
his specific charge as an Earth Warden is protecting humanity. Okay. And and the Earth King also, you know, is like principally there to protect a seed of humanity protect, in the yeah, dark. Earth has a, has has a lot to in stock with protection specifically. Yeah. Um, okay. Right, I would right, also add uh, Gaborn is further complicated by losing his endowments, where he is, mm-hmm. where his Earth powers are literally all he has left now. Well, not entirely, because he it, did still have some endowments that he took from people in Herodon. Oh, did he? Remember did at he? the at the end of oh, yeah, some yeah, of all men, they were, they were lining up right. to give him. He says, "Yeah, I'll only accept endowments from from those of you who realize <laughs> this is an act of war." But he yeah. still, you know, he loses many of wit, and he yes. indicates that this is a major problem, remembering all the people that he has chosen mm-hmm. for one. Oh, okay. mm-hmm. Yeah, that that's a an interesting point with, with the wit. Um, it, it doesn't matter if you, like, get more endowments. If you lose, if your dedicates are killed of wit, you lose those memories that were stored in them permanently. And- now that we're on this subject, thank you for reminding me. This is a total tiny little tangent that has nothing to do with any characters that we're currently discussing. Um, Gaborn's father, all right? I, I realized at one point, I said, wait a second. I, I bet, oh, actually, I'll, I'll tell you exactly what I wrote down word for word here <clears throat> um, about Gaborn's father. I'm suddenly betting that King Orden, Gaborn's father being, um, actually knew something very important before his dedicated were slain at the beginning of book one. Um, I, I'm not asking for any confirmation of that. I'm just suddenly, I'm just pointing out that suddenly I'm suspicious, and I don't remember exactly what it was that made me suspicious. But uh, yeah, just King Silveresta, you mean? Later. Well, Gaborn's father. Oh, was it was it Silveresta that lost uh, wit at the beginning of yeah. the Sum of All Men? Yeah. Oh, I thought it was Gaborn's father. Uh, okay, Mendelus Draken Orden, I believe his name was. Yeah. Um, yeah, okay. no, he, I got those he has all of his for a second there. He has all of his endowments until he dies. Okay. It's the yeah, the attack on the dedicates keep is at Castle Silveresta and oh. and uh yeah, he loses like one or two endowments of wit and and so like he he has all of his advisors around him and they're like trying to like okay. reteach him things about war and yeah, strategy yeah. and yeah. And he was very concerned, uh, very concerned in that moment that he's like, "Oh God, I, I feel like I've, I've." Oh yeah, because that's what I remember now because uh, Gaborn or he was worried that he had lost his memories of meeting him. Yes. Um, okay, now I remember. You're right. It was yeah, it was Iomi's father, not uh, Gaborn's father. Okay, thanks for clearing that up because that was a small little moment that I went, "Wait a second. Okay, <laughs> that's gonna save me a lot of wondering in the yeah. future." Um, but no, let, let's move on to Mirama because yes, let's, my girl. Yeah. She is such a fantastic character. Like she's awesome. I wasn't expecting that after you know after book one. How she's uh, she's, she's sort of growing into her role not only as like a, as a lady of Iome's court, but as a, a warrior in her own right. Where mm-hmm. she's she's like become the archer. And, yeah. Uh, uh, I have to admit, like after book one, I thought she was going to take a smaller role and it was going to be Iomi going forward. But I'm I'm kind of glad to see that it was Iomi that was given a smaller kind of. <clears throat> pardon me, like a sidecar role in this one so far. And Mirama's really had a chance to step up to the plate and shine. I mean, think about how far she has come in a matter of days. I mean, we can say that about a lot of the characters, but her specifically, I mean... She went from a peasant uh, girl to yeah, in, a lady of, you know... A, a noble warrior. Yeah, a, ru- a rune lord. I mean, she's a, a rune, rune lord. lord, yes. She, uh, yeah, she after is, yeah. helping drive off the Darkling glory, she's given... Uh, ten forcibles, and and uh, was she? Oh, it must have that must have been right when I dozed off at the end of that scene. Yeah, uh, she's uh, she's like <laughs> knighted by Iome. She like yeah. She like takes the dagger from Jareem and like taps her on the head and the shoulders and pronounces her Lady Borenson. I, think I had and, a dream about that. I think and I was and she gives her listening while that happened. She gives her uh, a boon of ten and ten forcibles and uh, interestingly. This is at uh, with uh, Duke Groverman, and she goes for dogs. So she is oh, not that's only why she a was going for lord, the dogs where I left but off. But she okay. is going to be a wolf lord. Yeah, wolf lord. Good. Oh man. So Mirama, man, she she's just she has quite a journey just through the first half of this book, where you know she's at Castle Silveresta and she's yeah becoming acclimated to being around all these you know, knights and lords and ladies and kings and queens. And 
she is seeking the ability to protect herself. She's, she's, um, you know, she feels kind of guilty about how she was uh, worthless, essentially, for the Battle of Longmont. Mm-hmm. And so she wants to learn how to uh, shoot, you know, arrows. Yeah, and To help in some way that she can. And she starts getting lessons from Sir Hoswell. Yeah, she does. Who is a <laughs> grade a, a creep. Yeah. They need to make a new grade for whatever kind of creep he is. <laughs> yeah. And Hoswell he, grade. he tries to rape her. And tries being the operative word and in that sentence. The timely arrival of one of our new characters, Aaron Connell. Oh, she might be my favorite though. I don't know between her and Mirima. Uh, anyway, sorry. Continue. I don't mean to interrupt. Yeah. So so uh, Mirima makes a new friend, and we have a new major character introduced in that scene with Aaron. Oh, she's going to be a major character. Nice. Well, good. I mean, she's a That's point of view character. We we get several points of view from her through the first half yeah, we of have. this book, and and that will continue. We also had a lot of points of view from Iomi in the first book, and we don't really see much of her so far in the second. I mean, she's Iomi's still. She's still. Be, a, yeah. She's still a central character, but yeah, we've seen a lot less yeah. of her uh, at this point in this book. Um. Uh, yeah, and then and then she about she stays behind at Castle Silveresta, and she's integral in in defeating the Darkling Glory. Who, by the way, we get a name. Yeah. Did we? I missed that. God, yes. I got to stop listening to the audiobook. Yeah. Anyway. That is, um, um, I wait. believe Binisman names him. Let me, let me pull this I don't out. remember this either. Okay, um, I'm not the only one then. <laughs> let's see here. And I do want to talk about the Darkling Glory and the summoning and the whole fight scene. Yeah, the, yeah. The battle. Uh, go for it. <laughs> I mean, as far well, as... I'll let you finish looking it up, uh, the name of it first. Unless, uh, Jared, you want to... No, no, go ahead. You know, start us off? Go ahead. Oh, I was just waiting on Drew. Yeah, I was just going to say, I, I know a little bit last time uh, in Some of All Men, we were talking about how one of Farland's um, great abilities here is to write these very visceral scenes. And yeah. for me, the fight with the Darkling Glory is definitely that one was, of these. Yeah, visceral is a good word to use. Uh, especially, was... I, don't, I don't know what it was for you, but when... He is blasting into sort of the cellar door where Iome and that yeah. uh, boy are trying to hide, and he's whispering yeah. to them. Very creepy. Oh. And, Sorry, hold on. Say that. What, what was that last? Those last like three words. I, I think that your mic cut out. Very creepy and epic. Oh, no, right before very creepy. Like right after he breaks into the into the room there into the. Uh, 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 God damn, what's his name? Uh, Business Man's room, and, and Iomi's hiding with the club-footed boy. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Um, that was creepy as <laughs> And there was a specific line. I, I, I love picking out these specific phrases that an author uses and just and just dissecting them. I love the line um, when, when, when Farland is dis- uh, discussing the sound of this creature's kind of screech, its kind of yell. He describes it as an aria of the damned. And I went, mm. oh, that's such a good line. That's mm-hmm. the paints such a nice picture. It sounds like it'd be like a really good, like black metal album, you know? <laughs> <laughs> nice. Aria of the Damned. It was really, it was really good. Um, everything with the Darkling Glory from its summoning, um, that was badass. The, the its its whole kind of momentous attack, and and how Gaborn kind of felt it coming, and how he was issuing orders telepathically, uh, telepathically, yes, um, to. Mm-hmm. To, to his chosen, it was just that that whole scene was really, really superb. And I, I also on the subject, I love the the fact that we get like kind of a, a mid book climax. If that's it, what you yeah, it very much felt yeah. like that. Um, you know, a lot of authors will wait until the very end of the book to, uh, until they give you something like as breathtaking and as fast paced and desperate as this is. Um, but and again, you know, drawing a possible correlation between Brandon Sanderson. And David Farland, um, you, you, especially with Brandon lately, you start to see a lot of a lot more of those. You see those those moments like halfway through a book, or maybe about you know thirty thirty five percent of the way through a book. That's like an oh sh moment. And it kind of correlates to a like you know Sanderson uses parts in his books, and it kind of correlates to a climatic scene at the end of one of. Yeah, parts you do have parts in these books. You have you know separate days. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah we that's do. true. That's true. Although that's the the, the climactic events, like the, these kind of um, 
peaking moments in the conflict early in the book do not necessarily coincide with the end of the days. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just, uh, it's, it, but, it, it but the pacing, more realistic. the pacing is very natural in these books. It moves mm-hmm. at a, a healthy clip, of course, but it's smooth. It, it feels right. It doesn't feel rushed despite mm-hmm. how it's fast not very, it is. Yeah. It's not very often I get through an entire book where I don't have a single moment anywhere that I'm going, oh my God, let's just get to this character. Or, oh mm-hmm. my God, let's wrap this up and move on with the plot. Uh, you know, you get that with almost every single book, but in, as far as uh, the Rune Lord series goes in The Sum of All Men and so far in the in Brotherhood of the Wolf, I haven't had any moments like that where I'm yeah. really, really, you know, aching to get back to a specific character. Yeah. Oh, you're, you're going to experience that again when we get to the gap cycle eventually. Oh, yeah? Oh, man. Okay. Oh. Okay. Talk about well-paced. Anyway, um, yeah, so uh, with the Darkling Glory specifically, um, you know, this is, we, we've now seen two creatures summoned from the Netherworld by the Flame Weavers. We have the Salamanders in the first book, and now we have the Darkling Glory. But the Darkling Glory is, uh, it's different. It's kind of its own entity, where the Salamanders yeah. were sort of mindless, like, like animalistic the darkling glory mm. is intelligent and it's yeah it there's this sense almost like is the darkling glory really serving the flame weavers or is he kind of using them as a way to get out well if he if he's conscious and he uh, yeah. and i'm just learning now that he has a name too yeah, yeah. of course he could have very well have his own personal agenda um at least i think they he's might realize right. they were in over their heads with this but mm-hmm yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I'm curious about I had... Rajaten's motives for doing this. What spurred this decision? How does he have control over this thing? That's what I want to know. Because the Flame Weavers are serve him, so the the Darkling Glory is just like, okay, I'll listen to what you gotta say. <laughs> That's. Well, uh... I mean, the impression I got ours... from it is that like he doesn't control it. They they don't control. It. They kind of like let it out and then pointed it in the right direction and, and let it, it go. didn't decide to kill them because they knew too much or they... well they could presumably they could like banish it back to the netherworld they had that power of flame weavers because they can open that portal uh, if they can open the portal yeah okay that, that's, so, that makes a little bit of logical sense i wanted to bring up castle Karis, which is where yeah. sort of the second act of, of this book is focused um it's this you know, uh, tremendous fortress on an island. Uh, mm-hmm. Sort of a, a similar uh, idea as Longmont, though different completely in architecture, where we have this super fortress, essentially, you know? Yes. And, uh, and, and another big battle is being set up. But we know from the end of Some of All Men how the Battle of Longmont played out in, in a very unexpected manner. It did. And it did. and I think Farland is sort of establishing a track record of that. And so I wanna I wanna get a little prediction here from Rob about oh, how yeah. how he thinks I forgot about that. Uh the ending of this book is gonna go here with, with these three three armies converging on Karis. We have the Reavers, we have Rajaten, and we have Gaborn and his his sort of relief force. So uh yeah, I want to hear okay. some thoughts from Rob. You know, I haven't considered any predictions this time around, but I can. I'll definitely throw a couple down. Um, with uh, with everything converging um, around Castle Caris, is it? Is that Karis. how you pronounce? Is, said the name, yeah. Um, with everything converging around there, I fully expect um, the battle to go. Not how the battle battle goes, but I I fully expect the battle to serve a useful purpose, and that purpose I think is going to be uniting the armies of mankind against the Reavers. Um, I think the Reavers are pretty clearly at this point like the the ultimate end goal, um, bad guy, the enemy. Uh, I I I don't think Raj Otten is going is finished in his storyline, so I think he's going to live. But I I really think that once Raj Otten's army gets um gets their first uh, glimpse of reality if that's what you want to call it and i think there'll be there'll there'll be a lot more room for negotiation if not complete and total alliances between 
you know, the Earth King, Gaborn, and Rajatan's forces as they unite in their uh, ultimate struggle, which will be that against the Reavers. I think uh, Binnis Man is going to die. I thought he was going to die, I think, if I'm remembering correctly. I think he, he was going to... I thought he was going to die at the end of book one. He definitely has to die sometime. He's too... Uh, this this might sound morbid, but he's too good of a character not to kill. Um, Interesting. I think uh, his death would serve a, a really useful purpose, and that would be like an, oh, shit, we've kind of lost our whole um, father figure, and we kind of have to figure out things for ourselves going forward. Um that's really about it. Um, as far as uh, uh, Benisman's wild, I have no idea. I have no godly idea what piece that she has to play uh, going forward from here. Yeah. I really, ho- I'm really hoping it's something good because at this point she's also giving me the heebie-jeebies, like more so than that fish. Oh or yeah, those yeah. Fish, I should say. Um, I'm a little creeped out by this wild. She's kind I'm of like really a, it's a not child, but with the powers of a wild yeah yeah like <laughs> how would that be I if think, this thing I think just she's went on a rampage supposed to be a little creepy i think he wrote her that way you know that oh he definitely did like, i just like hope she's, she's she's human for human in form but like when you get into the details of of her appearance that's, that's like, where it she's ends very inhuman yeah blood good blood bad it's like yeah blood blood no let's not talk about that anymore that's creepy <laughs> quick aside i love um, some of the comedic descriptions that Baron Pole uh gives for I love Baron Pole. We didn't get to talk about Baron Pole. Well there's not much to talk about with he has, I, I, like I can't even I can't remember any of them specifically, but he has some great yeah. one liners describing oh, I have this one. monster, you know. I have one right here, but uh a Baron Pole one liner. Uh let's see here. Baron Pole is a likable figure and then I quoted him. I don't think I'd fit into my old armor any better than I would into my wife's undergarments. <laughs> yeah. That was an awesome well, well, like, It was that moment right there I decided I liked Baron Pole. Just the very first scene when we meet him, when Roland yeah, you know, gets shoved into like, bed with him at, at the very full <laughs> inn. And he keeps, Baron Pole keeps like rolling over and groping him in his sleep, thinking yeah. that Roland is his wife. And yeah. like, and every time he... I honestly thought at that point that Baron Pole was going to die in that scene or the next <laughs> scene. Like, if it had been I Boren really, Boren really Jr. Yeah, that. oh, had that been Borenson Jr.? Yeah, and I ended that point with LOL. I'm cool with this guy coming along on the journey. <laughs> nice, nice, <laughs> definitely. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, yeah, yeah, we we. Uh, I'm 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 very intrigued to see where the wild goes. Yeah. Oh, have you not read past book two here? Uh, I have. I thought yes. you had read the whole thing. Yes. Okay. Oh, I see what you're doing now. Okay. <laughs> you're laying the groundwork for me to be suspicious. I see what you're doing now. Okay. Oh, um, I'm, I'm really yeah. excited. You know, like I said, I haven't touched these books in a long, long time, and they were some of my favorites when I was younger, and I'm, I'm vindicated that the quality is still there with these. You know, it's it, yeah. it, it may even be a little better than I remembered that, you know, I, when I was reading these as, you know, like a 13, 14-year-old, I wasn't maybe picking up on some of the subtleties and some of the, you know, the moral implications of things. And sure, sure. It, it goes even deeper than I thought it did. And, uh, but I, I do know, I mean, I, I remember the end of this book very vividly and it is fantastic. I'm really, really looking forward to finishing up this, this read through and, and talking about it in the next episode. I especially, and... I can't wait to see Rob's reaction Boner achieved. Right on. Um, uh, I just have a few more thoughts I want to get out of the way here. These are just mm-hmm. random thoughts that I had written down that we haven't touched on yet. Uh, let's see here. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Oh, so, and I, again, I'm, I'm writing, I'm quoting my notes here, word for word. Um, at this point, I'm still waiting to find out why the Reavers are such a big threat. I get that they are, and I, it totally makes sense to me. They're, they're non-human creatures. They slumber in the earth. They want to kill everybody and everything. They have weird powers that we don't understand, but I'm still waiting to, to see why they're such a big threat. Like, I get they're huge, and they can kill any men that they want to, but, I mean, the same can be said for, like, wild boars. Like, what sets them apart from mindless killing machines? They use magic, but so do the fish. So why s- such a strong reaction to sightings of reavers? Like, why lead yeah. entire hunts to exterminate them? They don't seem very threatening to humanity as a whole yet. 
read and find out. Okay, good. Well, yeah, <laughs> like that's that's one thought that I wanted to get out of the way. Uh, another thought here: Damn, the Darkling glory summoning was badass. You know, that just kind of goes uh, <laughs> as is. Um, let's see here, betting that King Orden knew something. Yeah, yeah, that turned out to be Silveresta. Uh, oh, Bornson's discussion uh, with the Invincible at the Blue Tower. Um, I wanted to just touch on that very, very briefly. I, I think it's uh, as to just as to why he follows Gaborn in the first place. Uh, that was very, very powerful. I definitely got more of a feel uh, for his like unwavering faith in mm -hmm. Gaborn during that scene because the Invincible had some good points, if I remember correctly. Um, he actually he did but, a pretty uh, good job persuading the Invincible to not kill him on the spot. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that was like when he when he decided, okay, I'm giving up all my arms, you know, I'm totally under your control. I I had that moment, that serious moment where I was like, oh sh, you know, like I have a lot of stock in in Borenson as a warrior, and with his weapons, I feel a lot more uh, confident yeah. and capable in the, in that man. Um, let's see here. Oh oh, here's here's something totally aside that we. This is just a stupid little off on the side thought, um, but. I'm starting to feel, and this is again quoting my notes directly. I'm starting to f feel that, or uh, hold on, I'm starting to notice Farland's lack of any care for horses. Uh, it seems like every battle scene has several vivid descriptions of horses dying, and none of them ever seem to have a name. Characters in these books must go through horses like a new pair of socks. <laughs> Certainly, that was uh, that that I, had I mean, I don't that. have much to add to that. I guess it's, it's I guess just it's an a, observation. Like I, I, I don't know much about horses myself. Like when Robert Jordan is talking about, you know, uh, uh, like geldings and, and and different kinds of horses and shit like that. I don't, I don't know anything. But we don't even get names of these horses in Farland series, and they're all just dying left and right. Like it's a fucking slasher film. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> it is certainly a, a pretty uh, drastic difference in the way horses are treated in this series, and, and yeah. not just like treated in world but like as the author treats them from the wheel of time where and i don't want to make anybody like oh Rob, so you know you just like you, you know but, well, but it, horses i mean it, 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 is, it is an interesting thing it's to just... note from like an authorial perspective how in in some series the wheel of time notably you know everybody's horses are named yeah they're they're like you know they have Bella, I mean, I mean, you have you have Bella who who's been turned into a freaking meme by the the <laughs> fandom, um, and and even in the Wheel of Time, it yeah. goes beyond that into like uh, some other animals. We're not going to go into that now, but yeah. like animals are are you know given like personalities in in the Wheel of Time, and that's very much not the case here. Like and the, the animals are like used as tools. You kill and that's one, about and you it. kill another. They don't have any names. They don't have any yeah. personalities. They're just they're basically just like furniture they're tools that you have to feed part of it is much. that they're they they are part of the endowment system as well yeah, exactly they're yeah. they're they're there to help move the story along and that's it they're yeah they're exactly they're, they're a plot device more yeah. than they are like a character it's like oh right? we or need like we need of... some endowments here all yeah. right let's, Force let's horses. get some some puppies and and uh have them bond with mirama and oh she has 10 endowments yeah. now or we need yeah. to run we need to ride 600 miles in a day in order to get all the pieces together for this battle. All right, well, they're all riding on four horses. So, mm. like... <laughs> um, so as far as the rest of my, my notes go, I just have a, a couple tiny little comments. That's mm -hmm. all they are. They're just comments. Um, it was a really sobering moment for Mirima in Chapter 26 as she contemplates the possibility of death as she's fighting the, the Darkling Glory, or yeah. it's attacking um, the castle. And she can't help but thinking about how glad her family would be to get their endowments back. And to quote her point of view specifically, it did not matter if Mirima died. She thinks that more than once. I think it's twice in that scene. It does not matter if I die. And she keeps thinking about how happy her family would be. Her sisters would be to get their glamour back. How happy her mother would be to get her wit back. Um... I think that added a lot more weight and dimension to her yeah. character, and uh, I'm really glad to see that she was she managed to to pull through and, and and pull something off that like she did. Because my next point is just one sentence: is go Mirama, you kill that son of a bitch, <laughs> and it was awesome. Yeah, no, awesome. A... and that's the end of my uh, my notes here. A good point to bring up. It it really drives home the reality of the consequences of this magic system, you know? Yeah. Like, 
Like that. This is something that these people, uh, and by by these people, I mean rune lords. They have to live with knowing that they have yeah. taken something, you know, dear and vital from other people. Mm-hmm. And it was given, it, you know, it, it was yeah, given. Willingly, of course. It has to be but, willingly. You have to be devoted yeah, to give it. But but it's still like you've left people in this reduced state for your own betterment. Uh-huh. And 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 that's something that, you know, I'm sure there are plenty of rune lords out there who never even consider it. They're too self centered. Right. They're but and that marks the characters but, that are But this is a you know, a point in Miramas' favor that this is something she considers. That this is something yeah. her moral compass uh, forces her to regard. Yeah. And it's something that I think Farland has done really well um, in saying that in this case, in this particular series, the true heroes might be the dedicated. Those who, 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 who sacrifice themselves yes. so that they can, they can endow their abilities onto their rune lords. Mm-hmm. Um, it kind of gives a whole new interesting take on the whole kind of hero and those who need to be saved relationship. Who's saving who? Is Are the heroes saving the dedicated or really are the dedicated being the ones to save, to sacrifice and save yeah. the heroes? Yeah, it's... Well, and you have another part of Farland's writing that I love so far is your heroes and your antagonists are faced with real, real world choices that are morally ambiguous and sometimes... Yeah. Both choices are the right thing. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. From a certain point of view. From a certain point of view. Yeah. Relative to your perspective, of course. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that's that is Raja Ten. That you know, he's this that tremendous is... villain. But when you hear him give his arguments for what he does, you're like, wow, he's trying to do the same thing Gaborn is doing. Yeah. Yeah. A, a really good anti-hero, uh, or I should say, uh, a really good uh, protect or antagonist. antagonist. Jesus yeah. Christ, I'm getting my my terms mixed up here. Is somebody who legitimately believes that they're doing the right thing, mm-hmm. and that makes them, if anything, even more terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and, absolutely. Uh, so, does that about uh, wrap up our discussion for? Uh, do we uh, want to just go into the final draft here? Yeah, we can head into the final draft. I um, I think I need to pee again. <laughs> well, then let's make this quick. And uh... I got nothing anyways. Yeah. Okay, yeah, that's true. Yeah. I had a rough uh, for, evening. For those who don't know, which is everybody, these two have uh, done a bit of partying last night, so they're not <laughs> yeah, quite yeah. as... One, uh... one of our good friends is back home from the Army, so we went out and had a couple of beers. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, you want to start with what you've been drinking? or uh, Yeah, so I, I, I just cracked this open. I, I wasn't even sure if I was going to, but I decided it's too good not to. It's a breakfast Yeah, stout. join me up here. It's Breakfast Stout from Founders Brewing Company in Michigan. Breakfast uh, Stout. I am over the moon right now because Founders just came to Colorado. Uh, this particular beer is my favorite non-barrel-aged stout, period. It is just amazing. So what it is, is it's a double chocolate coffee oatmeal stout. It is just booming with flavor. I mean, it is delicious. <laughs> So if if you uh you know if you're a stout kind of person and you ever see this on tap at a you know at a bar or a restaurant or you know you're wandering through the liquor store looking to pick up a couple of beers, yeah. uh, try this. It is so good. Sweet, sweet. And so that's not a local brew. I might be able to find that like up here somewhere. Uh, maybe. I mean, if they yeah, distribute to Canada, I'm not sure if they do. I, they distribute to like I think 48 states now, so it wouldn't surprise me if they're in Canada. Sweet, sweet. Uh, Jared, you said you're not drinking anything at the moment, right? Correct. Okay. Well, I <laughs> Sorry, guys, I'll, I'll I couldn't do it today. <laughs> to what I picked up at the uh, local grocery store, uh, we, we've just started selling beer in grocery stores here, by the way, in Canada. It's a yeah. kind of a new thing, so it's kind of a novelty for me to be able to go to the grocery store and pick up beer. Um, but the one I picked for today was just a really funny name. It was a really good play on words, and that's why that's all it takes to win me over. This here is a Belgian amber ale, and it's called. I don't know if you can see it. Beauty and the Belgian. Yep. It's uh, it's a somewhat strong beer. It's six point three percent. Um, it's pretty dark and it's pretty murky. I wasn't able to see through it at all. It's pretty opaque, but it is delicious. It says on the bottle, big fruity Belgian yeast, accompanied by spice and slight sweetness from the caramelized malts. They're big bottles too. These are like two bottles each equivalent. Okay. And I have consumed precisely two of them over the recording of this podcast so i'm feeling pretty good right now (laughs) Um, 
But uh, yeah, I, I have no idea what I'm going to pick up for next week. But I'd highly, uh, I would definitely recommend the it, Beauty and the Belgian. It's, uh, it's right. a good try. And 6.3% alcohol, you can't go wrong. It'll do the trick. Yeah. <laughs> It'll definitely do that. So yeah, we going to so wrap up? I think so. Uh, once again, thanks for listening. Uh, yes, thank you, everybody. And we'll uh, pick it up again next week as we finish off brotherhood of the wolf the second book of the rune lords and that one's yes, gonna be a good one so yeah i'm looking forward to it that'll be episode six. Oh my god we've been already we've done five episodes already boys thank yeah. out yeah hell yeah all right signing off thinking right. out loud episode five rob see out see y'all <laughs>